everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Who are you? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't like being put on the spot. <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Um, I'm not gesturing, uh, I'm not prestidigitating the same way William was during his uh, introduction, <laughs> but uh, but I, too, am a film critic, and I'm here to answer your letters because this is your show. That's right. Uh, over here at We've Got Mail, uh, we ask you to write into us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can write in uh, with uh, questions, critiques, your top ten lists. You want us to recommend movies to you. You want us to talk about, I don't know, delicious potato chips. I, I, I love potato chips. I also love potato chips, but if you want to find out more, you got to ask. And uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so we got that going on. Oh, I am we, got, we, got the, we got the giggles today. We got, we're a little I giggly am. today. We're, do, we're doing good. We've got uh, soap making going on in the background today. Yeah. Oh, woo. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's the fumes. Maybe they're it's like <laughs> making really us lightheaded. Really, it's, it's soap. There aren't really fumes. It's just, it's just a nice smell. Oh, it's Strawberry a... giggles, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> just, um, you're, you're making soap over there. and it. it I mean, th- this is not trying to be pejorative or anything, but it looks vaguely meth lab-ish. So well, there's an alchemy to it. Yeah. There's an alchemy yeah. to it. Yeah. Oh, uh, that is, that is of course, M. Lapis da Silva, who's been on the show a few times. Uh, and uh, yeah, she's working hard on our new project, Salt Cat Soap, yeah. uh, which is a new Etsy store uh, that we have. And uh, yeah, we sell uh, handcrafted soaps, 99% of them by Michelle. Uh, I might have a few geeky or schmodanny designs throughout the year, but she's she's doing all the incredible work so far. And uh, yeah, it's on Etsy. If people are a lot of people have asked, so okay. it's on Etsy. Go to Etsy, search for Salt Cat Soap, um, and uh, we add new designs uh, for Saturday of every month. So boom, <coughs> wanted to get that uh, uh, information out there. And I I don't know if anyone asked about soaps, but if they did, mm. Michelle is in the background, so she can she can <laughs> chime in. But uh, let's just get started, shall we? All right. Here's our first uh, email from. Here's a letter from Rick. Hello, Rick. Hi, Rick. Uh, Hey, Bibbs and Whitney. I write this having just finished part one of Lupin. My daughter and I have already wrapped Alice in Borderland and are halfway through Sweet Home. I don't know Sweet Home. Um, Um, I've heard of that one. Those are all Netflix shows. Highly recommended the latter two, and Lupin is fun enough. Uh, While I am by no means an expert, I do enjoy foreign language TV and film and have already increased my consumption prior to the pandemic thanks to their increased availability on streaming services. Mm -hmm. When the pandemic both increased demand for for shows and restricted supply by shutting down productions, Netflix closed the gap by increasing their offerings of foreign language titles. Many of these appear to have been quite popular, which brings me to my question. What long-term impact do you see this see this phenomenon having on American viewing practices? Will we treat this like an outage at the grocery store sold out of Jif Peanut Butter so I'll make do with Skippy for a couple of weeks? Or will view, viewers find, uh, finally find and enjoy foreign content enough to actually seek it out? On the supply side, will Netflix find that foreign content is popular and increase their mix? Will they find that it is more cost-effective to procure a higher percentage of it, knowing viewers will... Uh, be content to choose from what is offered. Will Hollywood look at Netflix's success and increase their funding and importation of foreign language films rather than remaking it with an American cast? As much as I'd like to think that this pandemic uh, could have the positive effect of permanently expanding our worldview through experiencing other cultures' art, it's 
far easy to envision us to going back to our old comfortable viewing habits. Still, I hope that we can emerge with an increased desire for and access to foreign language content, as well as more opportunities for diverse creators at home. I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether or not this will have any lasting effects of this current shift. Proud patron, Rick. Um, Rick, that's a great question. Uh, thank you for that. Um, to, to your point, um, I actually think this shift actually started before the pandemic, and I started noticing over the last 10 years or so that Netflix had been, without really calling a lot of attention to it, really beefing up its foreign language offerings. Mm. Now, unfortunately, their classics are still pretty crap across the board, but when yeah. it comes to uh, modern film, I mean, they have a ton of uh, Spanish language, mm -hmm. Indian films. Uh, yeah, I was about to say Bollywood yeah. is highly represented their, on Their Netflix. kung fu movie selection comes and goes, but there have been times when it's been really excellent. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of their international TV has been available for a while. It's not always hitting the zeitgeist the way I think well, it is now, yeah. because I think offerings... I think, it's, I think it's a combination. I think because the availability of international cinema and television has been increasing. I mean, and what I mean by availability is it's easy for people to get. They don't have to go out of their way to find it. Yeah, you, you can get the Criterion Channel anywhere now. That's in, true. In the, in the United yeah. States. But, or even, but even, even so, like TV, like international TV was often kind of hard to find because it was seen as competing with American TV. So hmm. why would we go out of our way to import it unless we're like Adult Swim and we're picking up anime, for yeah. example. Um, so... We're starting to see more of that, and that's really great. And I think it's starting to make people more comfortable with uh, cinema and television from other cultures, other countries, mm -hmm. other languages. Uh, but yeah, I think the pandemic and the fact that a lot of the movie studios and TV you know, uh, stations have started either ramping down production or holding off on their stuff. Mm -hmm. Because they only have so much of it and they want to make sure they can parcel it out or they want to make sure once the pandemic lifts a bit and we can send people back to theaters again, we have something ready mm -hmm. to go. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of independent movies starting to make a bigger splash because of this. And yeah, we're starting to see a lot of international mm -hmm. uh, content as well. And that's, I mean, that is a good thing. Well, we, we already saw a, and a Korean film win Best Picture at the American Academy Awards. So, yeah, last um, year. Last year. Parasite, that was before the pandemic. I, and yeah, I, that was a I good think, sign. I uh, think the, the first crack in the armor might have been the popularity of something like Pokemon, which was a, a Japanese import. It was dubbed for American yeah, audiences. Yeah, but Japanese imports have been... That, I mean, that Pokemon that, was next level, yeah, but they've been doing that since Voltron. Well, I was about to say going, going all the way back to Gigantor in the yeah. 60s, but uh, there's... That was like... Like you said, it was next level. Like the popularity of Pokemon just was something that could not be ignored anywhere, so a lot yeah. of Saturday morning... Uh, Animated programming started importing a lot more yeah, anime oh God, we for gotta, an American what's this, audience. Digimon, bring it in. Yu-Gi-Oh, you too, everybody. Yeah. I don't know what what is uh, what is this? Monsters in my laundry. <laughs> I don't know. Take it, take it. It's probably a hit. Shot through the heart, and you're to blame. Yu-Gi-Oh's a card game. Uh, <laughs> that, that's how I reminded myself. That was I like my, that. my that's mnemonic. Good. That's good. Uh, <laughs> that's good. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but yeah, uh, I think the increased consumption of international content will only continue as long as uh, all the streaming services continue to offer it. The Netflix model might not be the best to go to because they're notorious about offering uh, their shows for only a limited amount of time mm. or they'll eat however popular it is. They'll just move on to the next thing really quickly. On the other hand, if it's already been produced, like mm. it's like a, a well, Korean drama or a Japanese mm. drama or an anime, like if it's already been produced, They'll put it all out there because it doesn't really add anything. Yeah. Well, They're not necessarily going to invest money in a show the, past uh, like a second season. Yeah, the, the, big, uh, the big problem is a lot of these uh, 
streaming platforms are leaning more and more into their own original content exactly. rather than importing other content. And uh, But they might have... I said content. I, I'm we, trying not to say that. We're trying um, to break ourselves of it. Uh, but if the pandemic continues and American productions aren't able to be made and we can only get TV shows and movies from around the world, then yes. And again, that's a, that's an interesting because that's a reversal of the status quo for a lot of places. There's a lot of places in the world where there isn't as much TV and movie production as there is in America. Some places there's more, but usually it's less. Um, Often they don't have the budgets that we do. And mm. as a result, a lot of their material is imported from America. Some of it isn't even the stuff that's popular here mm. that gets like really popular somewhere overseas. So this is just kind of the entertainment industry kind of like evening out. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Americans are just like, oh, uh, we have to watch movies from other countries the way that every other country in the world has had to do <laughs> this whole time. Mm. All right, sure. What you got? Oh, it's all awesome. Oh, what you- oh this is great. <laughs> This is so cool. There are other countries other than the United States, Americans. Uh, I know, I know. It might blew my mind, too. There's at least two. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's a great question. And again, I hope, uh, because I feel like uh, cinematic and even television, if you want to separate them, uh, literacy is a problem. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of people are get really insular and they're only really concerned about what's conveniently available. And I do think that having all these streaming services where more diverse stuff is available mm-hmm. and taking a chance on it doesn't require any effort. Like, oh, I don't need to like spend an additional four bucks at this video store. It's just here. And all I got to do is press a button and go, interesting, <laughs> interesting. He's a sweet tooth salary man. That's <laughs> interesting. So he's, so he's a, he, he does business and he also likes desserts. And there's a whole show out of that? And it's good? Well, damn, let's watch that. And it's great. <laughs> I think it's uh, Kintaro, the Sweet Tooth Salary Man. That's on Netflix. That's a really fun show. Um, so, uh, yeah, availability helps. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we also have to keep talking about it. And we have yeah. to normalize it. I think but that's yeah, a big it, part of it. It's nice that um, a lot of uh, audiences in the United States are finally, finally, just sort of casually absorbing international yeah. media. Yeah, well, that's great. That's a great uh, email. Let's move on. Uh, here is a letter from Kaylin. Hello, Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about the misconceptions I've had about life when I was a kid. For example, and I think this is one a misconception shared with Bibbs. I thought the Muppets sang Kokomo because there was a music video on one of my Winnie the Pooh tapes. I also thought that the president was the president for life, and I was highly confused that Bill Clinton just wasn't going to be president anymore. (laughs) I spent at least six months of my life thinking that the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were the same boy band, and I thought that movies were basically a filmed play, which made Titanic seem a near-impossible accomplishment. They sank a real ship. Yeah, it was all done in real time. I used to think that, too, actually, when I was was little. It was all done in real time. I hadn't seen any behind-the-scenes stuff, and I was like, oh, they shoot different angles at different times and stuff? That sounds complicated. <laughs> Wait, they don't shoot them in order? Like, some directors do They don't, shoot, they don't do that. shoot it all live? Like, yeah, like, some yeah. directors do like to shoot their scenes in or, script order. Yeah, but that's... Like, I think Ron Howard likes to do it that yeah, way. Yeah, and he can afford to. Yeah. Like, most filmmakers just... That, that, like, he'll leave a location, a lo- then go back to a that's location. That's a logistical yeah. nightmare. Usually, we have the location, we're going to we'll keep... do all the, lo- the scenes that are in that location yeah, regardless, today. Regardless and, yeah. of where they take place in the script, we need to do them all uh-huh. today, and that's one of the reasons why screen mm-hmm. acting can be a little trickier than stage acting. But, yeah, anyway. and, uh, but the question is, what kind of things did you misunderstand? as a child, Galen. Uh, P.S. I bought M. Lapis de Silva's new book, Hooker, and Woo! I plan on reading it sometime soon. 
Uh, PPS, I just love that Bibbs calls Michelle his wife and partner. There's something so supportive about that, and I think it's awesome. Uh, I think uh, too oh. many people try to treat their their partner or their spouse, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, in like a possessive way, and I think that's what we my got. wife, my yeah, and again yeah. and again, whoever, whatever you're comfortable with. I mean, it's your life, it's your partnership. You can do whatever you like, but for me, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that it's abundantly clear that she has mm-hmm. so her own thing. <laughs> she is. Such an important part of my life that mm. goes way beyond the the simple fact that we are married. So, mm. um, yeah, she's incredible, and unfortunately, she's not in the room right now. Uh, hey, another copy of your book sold. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you heard, but we, there was a yay. We heard there was a, a yay from the other, from room. other room. So, um, thank thank you, Caitlin, for buying uh, yeah. buying Michelle's book. Uh, what did you misunderstand as a kid? Well, uh, I guess this is. About movies or just about life in oh, general? We had life in general in okay, email, yeah, so I guess anything so. at all. that um, For movies in particular, mm. I shared the exact same thing. I assumed that every movie was filmed by just... You, everyone acted out the whole thing. They went to different sets and locations. And mm. they tried to do it all at once. And I remember very distinctly... <clears throat> excuse me. I was watching an episode of The Wonder Years of all things. Mm. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute... They wrote this. <laughs> this wasn't all ad lib. <laughs> and they, and they had to like, and they had to like find the right angle. And mm. then they shot another angle and they probably didn't do that at the exact same time. And then they probably had a whole other day. of shit. All of a sudden it just occurred to me how complicated making a movie must be. Mm. And that was exactly the moment when I realized I had to do something with this my, in my life. <laughs> I, movies were just suddenly so mad. There's such, mm. there's such complicated enterprises. And for years, and I was like, I don't know how old I was, eight or nine. I was all for years. I just believed the magic, mm. and now all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, that magic is work. I want to do oh, something um, in that line of work. That's an amazing line of work. I'll say this: um, I, I can't remember a time in my life when I thought like a fiction was real. Like, in the, yeah. I'm watching a TV show and thought that's a real person somewhere. Okay, but uh, I did. I was confused about sort of the production, mm-hmm. especially when I came to cartoons. Because I like to draw, I like to sketch, and when you're a little kid, you just sort of draw the whole drawing. Yeah. And uh, then I went to, like, an animation festival when I was, like, maybe nine or ten, and I was, my mind was blown when I realized, wait a minute, they don't redraw the whole character in every single frame, they only, like, (laughs) redraw the blinking eyes of the part that's gonna move. And right. yeah, it's like, and I was like flipping through these cells and one is like just an arm or just an eye because that's the yeah. only part that's animating. That's all you need to do. Yeah. If you're, and, if you're and, saving time money anyway. Yeah. And I thought, you know, two things simultaneously. One, wow, what an efficient way to work. They figured <laughs> it out. I wouldn't have thought of that. And then the other part of me is like, what a, I, I feel so cheated yeah. that they're not, they're not drawing the whole character every Wait, time. This for is me. what you think of me. You couldn't yeah. be bothered to draw the whole character every time. You think I wouldn't notice because I didn't. <laughs> that was a misconception I had about the, the, the art of animation. Um, it's like when you learn that uncle yeah. Sam isn't real. I didn't want to say like any other like holiday deities in case kids are listening, <laughs> but like, yeah, like, Oh yeah. I was not a real guy. Well, unless you unless you have an uncle named Sam, well, then, I suppose then, that yeah. would be true. Uh, I, I had another one I was just thinking of. Oh, oh um, the, the Monkeys, the Beatles, and Simon and Garfunkel are the same band. <laughs> all, all three. Like I, I heard a song by any one of those, and I thought they were all the Beatles. I thought of this. This is the silliest one, mm. and I'm not going to reveal to you how old I was when I found out this wasn't true. You were 35, suffice, weren't you? No, not that bad. But mm. suffice it to say, if I told you, you would all laugh. Mm. Okay. I thought. That the carpool lane was mm. supposed to be for cars with pools in them. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I believe this... You were 35, weren't you? <laughs> quite. All right. The reason I believe this is because there was an animated kid show called Beverly Hills Teens. It was all about rich kids in Beverly Hills. <laughs> I, watched, like, I watched that thing on the regular. It was it was like counter-programming the gem and the holograms. Like mm. that was that was the market they were going for. And and you can see it in the opening credits. If you ever watch the opening credits of Beverly Hills Teens, um one of them has a limousine with a jacuzzi in the back. Yeah, they are like they're that wealthy. Yeah. So I thought, well, we live near Beverly Hills. I grew up in Southern California. The rich people have everything. Hmm. They probably paid off the highway so that only the rich people with their carpools should be. And I remember my dad was in the carpool lane once because like the whole family was in a car. And I was like, Dad, I, I don't know how we're getting away with this. And then it was not explained to me for many years. <laughs> <laughs> they just sort of like rolled their eyes and didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And then they just never bothered explaining hmm. it. Yeah, I, I, uh, my si- I, I had an older sister who could who could teach me in such things. Yeah, she's three years older than me, and uh, so we actually had a very serious conversation once about Beverly Hills Teens. Really? Because we were looking at that, and we're, we were both looking at it. It's like that's a big car. You couldn't really fit a lot of people in a in a jacuzzi. And my <laughs> sister pointed out to me, you know what? It, it, every time you stop, the water would all come sloshing out. She's, I was like, yeah, you're right. This is bullshit. Like. <laughs> There's but, no pool in a car. And then I saw one uh, in live action. There was a yeah. joke in the movie Brain Donors. Oh, I forgot gets, about that. gets in this right, gigantic yeah. long limousine and there's like this little one person hot tub in the back. I and, forgot about that, yeah. But I, I that noticed... That probably also in, helped convince me. Well, I also noticed in that movie that it's like a bubble bath. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, Mel Smith is sitting in it and he's covered in foam. And I just knew right away, no, it's just foam. There's no water in there. <laughs> they just filled it with foam and they had him got in and they tried to fake it. You're, so, you lied to me. Bonk. So the the idea of having a pool in your car is like that's just absurd. I figured you out. <laughs> Felt like such a, a cynical asshole at such an early age. Anyway, we all believe things Ooh. when we're kids, either because someone told us that, not thinking it would actually take. Yeah, I know a lot of parents like to play little jokes on their kids mm. about like what you know. Like Calvin and Hobbes used to have jokes about this all the time, like Dad, what's wind? And Dad mm. would say it's trees sneezing, and Calvin would say. That's not what it is, right? And Dad's like, no, but the truth is a lot more complicated. <laughs> and it just cuts to like a windy day. Trees sure are sneezing today. <laughs> like that's uh, had a lot of that when I was a kid. Mm. A lot of parents just telling me stuff, thinking that it was funny, and then I just learned stupid mm. things. I, um, I, I I'll have you know, I don't do that with my son. Good, because <clears throat> Michael Ironside told you not to. That's true, Michael Iron. When when uh, before my son was born, we got to interview Michael Ironside. And I, you know, I told him, oh, I'm really nervous. I'm about to have a son. And he, he pulled me aside. He actually put his arm around. I his saw this. It was a hell of a moment. And he said, let me give you some fatherly advice. Never lie to your child. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't know something, just say so. And I said, you know, that's good advice, it's Michael Ironside. Really and, good advice from Michael Ironside. And you you know, should write a parenting book. It's actually helped me. Good. That's <laughs> when, nice. When you don't know something, just say so. Right. Well, uh, thank you for the fun <laughs> question. I hadn't thought about some of those things in a while. Uh, what do we got yeah. next? Let's see. Um, uh, here's a letter from Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, hello, Messrs. Bibiani and Seibold. Uh, first off, I would like to take the time to thank you for uh, thank your Patreon member hmm. who requested slash forced you to to rewatch Cats. <laughs> My love for that movie is immense, despite having nothing to do with the original intentions the filmmakers have. What a movie. And I loved hearing your thoughts while suffering through it again. Uh, I had some thoughts about the plot. 
Uh, real fast, just in case anyone's mm. not following along or maybe you're new. Uh, recently, uh, we had a Patreon uh, member request that Whitney and I release a feature-length commentary track for the movie Cats that you could sync up at home if you wanted to. Um, and we did. And it was a hell of a night. Yeah. And that is still available on the feed. And if you haven't listened to it yet, um, no, we, that's a thing you can do. We, we don't drink on the podcast. We've done it twice in the past. Always a um, mistake. And no, the second time it wasn't a mistake. It was, it was for our Yule Log commentary. Oh, you know what? You're right. That, we just was, had, that we, one was kind of fun. We just had a few sips of brandy. We didn't get like smashed drunk or anything. I apologize. That one was fun. Yeah. Yes. But uh, the, there was a, a podcast we did long ago where, where I got smashed on, on mic and it was not becoming no it um, wasn't even a good show <laughs> no no like I, you, you had me get drunk and review the lorax and it was just a really difficult thing to do well, yeah, like, i didn't have been drunk fun. before you, no that was my first you time chugged it too instead of just sipping it like a normal person and it well because i hated it i didn't oh. want to drink anyway uh i had some <laughs> thoughts about the plot of cats uh changing the opening song from being sung to the audience in an auditorium to the character of victoria seems to suggest there's some sort of cats class system Cats that are jellicle and cats that are not jellicle. Yep. With this unknown newcomer to their area, the bourgeois class of cats are trying to determine whether or not this new cat does belong to their class or not. That's why they have to ask Victoria if she can see in the dark or land on your feet, find find your way blind when you're lost in the street, etc. My theory, however, is that Victoria is actually a plant. <laughs> Sent there by Grizabella in order to manipulate the Jellicle cats to steal the Heaviside Layer nomination. It was mentioned that the reason Grizabella was ostracized was because she was caught spending time with McCavity, meaning that at some point they may have been in cahoots with each other, meaning she wanted to steal the Heaviside selection. We clearly see what McCavity was willing to do, but maybe it was actually all part of Grizabella's plan and not McCavity's. She found a regular proletariat cat, Victoria, <laughs> trained her to act Jellicle, to infiltrate the high-class society, and had McCavity kidnap all the Jellicle candidates for the Heaviside Lair, then had Old Deuteronomy taken away to distract all the other Jellicles from what would have actually been going on and cause them to panic, then had McCavity return Old Deuteronomy while everyone was distracted by their attempts to have the magical Mr. Mistopheles bring back Deuteronomy, because we didn't see how Old Deuteronomy actually gets returned, manipulates the Jellicles to hear Grizabella's banger of an audition, memory, and... While all the other heavyside contenders are still stuck on the boat, and because of all of the twists and turns they were put through, only come to the conclusion that Grizabella has to be the chosen one to ascend. But I doubt that the filmmakers put that much thought into the plot, and it really is as bad as we think it is. Uh, headcanon is fun. <laughs> Isn't it just? Headcanon is a delight. I have plenty of headcanons of my own. Mm. Uh, that's a little elaborate for my taste, but it, whatever makes the movie fun for you, knock yourself mm. out. What I do like about that theory uh, is that it's almost a redemption for McCavity. Mm. Is that he's actually might have been doing it for Grizabella in some way, and that maybe they're actually mm. like cool, and maybe that's why he was like hanging on, like Grizabella, I want to go with you, we're buds. Like maybe, maybe every time he vanished, he was trying to say McCavity doesn't want this, but he just turned and said McCavity, <laughs> and then <laughs> another place doesn't want this. Oh, friend. <laughs> Um, he was he Grizabella was teleporting him around against his will. Oh god. <laughs> I don't like the idea of Grizabella being like evil because I feel like she's she has she has it hard enough as like the sex worker who's shamed by this high class <laughs> society. Um but I do like the idea of her like sort of undermining their power in kind of a Robin Hood kind of way. Uh -huh. So that's kind of fun, yeah. Anyway, I, I would con I could continue to rant about Andrew Lloyd Webber's music, but I'll shorten it to this. It all sucks. <laughs> On this, we agree. Uh, except, for, except for Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> 
I may defend that stance in a future email, but this one is long already. I Wishing you a parts of Phantom of the Opera, I'm willing to go with that. <laughs> Wishing you a better content, uh, better 2021 going forward. Your faithful Canadian listener, Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you so mm. much, uh, and we hope you have a wonderful 2021 as well. And everyone listening, mm. um, and uh, cats, holy cats, they're cats. Maybe mm. the heavy side layer wasn't death. Mm. But it was there a chance to evolve Pokemon style into humans? Maybe the friends we made along the way were the heavy side layer. Maybe the cats were the friends we made along the way. No, I think I think like the heavy side layer is like no no no. The friends we made along the way are the heavy side layer. Think about it. Imagine if Buckaroo Banzai said that and how like profound that would be. Remember, wherever you go. There you are. First time I heard that, it blew my goddamn mind. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was like, whoa. That, whoa. Yeah. When I was... Uh, it's like that Beatles song, without going out of my door, I can learn all things on earth. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> we go. You must have a lot of books. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine uh, pointed out to me in junior high school that um, I was a big Star Trek fan at the time. I still am. But he said, you know, in Star Trek, they say set phasers on stun. It's a good life philosophy, isn't it? <laughs> Never set to kill. Just stun. Yeah, that's good. By the way, before we move on completely mm. from cats, I want to mention something I forgot to mention, I think, on the, on the mm. uh, commentary track. Um, there's something that needs to be stopped okay. uh, on IMDb. And that is uh, putting quotes from movie trailers in the quotes section, because inevitably you end up with the blandest quotes. So I looked at like the quote, mm. I was trying to find like a lyric and I thought maybe it'd be easiest just to find it on IMDb quotes because it's okay. a famous lyric. I want to make sure I got it right. But um, <clears throat> I looked at the IMDb quotes and it was things like from trailer, here we go. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That's not <laughs> worth writing down. <laughs> That's not a memorable quote. Anyone says that and everything. That's like putting a quote from a movie, like from the trailer. Let's do this. Like, yeah. no, that's not a quote. I, uh, let's do this is this generation's uh, let's get out of here. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a study uh, at some point, and they, they would put this on like those film sl- trivia slides they would play before the movie back when they did that. Now it's just a whole digital pre- presentation. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, let's get out of here, was the most commonly used phrase in, in Hollywood productions. Interesting. Like, uh, we're, wh- wherever they are, let's get out of here. Like, let, we're in a bar, let's get out of here. Oh no, the sky is falling, let's get out of here. Uh, and let's get out of here, they, when it was pointed out, they stopped using it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh no, this is a cliched line of dialogue. Yeah. Let's do this is still a thing. It's like, they're like not moving years. away. Yeah. I've lost track of how many, just every time you see that in a trailer, mm-hmm. just be like, oh. Okay, let's do this. Ah, oh, Deadpool, why? Why are you doing it? You're so above this, Deadpool. De- Deadpool, like, you'd think he's, like, yeah. he'd say something funnier, like, let's skin this monkey, or whatever he's got. Uh, I, I might, I, I was just picking a name out of a hat. I don't specifically yeah. recall if Deadpool said that, but it well, feels, just, it's, I, it's that kind give, of vibe. Give it something unique to the character, yeah, not just let's do this. Yeah, what someone, I just want someone to say, like, let's giddy up, like, just something fun, you know? <laughs> Mix it up a little. Let's paint this wagon. Yeah. <laughs> Let's carve this jack-o'-lantern. Let's stank this hooba. Yeah. Let's gild this coffee table. Uh, right. Here's a letter from Starship. Hello, Starship. Hi, Starship. That's um, an awesome name. Hello, gentlemen. I just listened to your thoughts on how movies are advertised, and I wanted to share a small anecdote of my own. I remember that when Bridge to Terabithia came out in the mid-2000s, oh, God, this. it was yeah. advertised as a big fantasy movie. Having read the book in school, I remember uh, thinking that either they have drastically changed the plot, or they're going to be uh, some very upset children and angry parents, and sure enough, the latter happened. Yeah. 
Uh, Bridge to Terabithia is about a, a I think they're like eleven or twelve. Um, yeah, little, a bo- little kids, a bo- yeah. kids, boy and girl. Uh, I think I don't remember the circuit. I think the boy moves into town, meets mm. this girl, they mm. become friends, and they find this uh, island, like in, in a river near their home. Yeah, it's and kind of like a secret to, garden kind of thing. Yeah, and they're, they're able place. to go there, yeah. and it's just this little like nature preserve that they declare to be their own. And because they're Narnia fans, they decide to give it a fantasy name, and it's Terabithia. Uh, but they have to swing on a rope to get there, and that's a big plot point. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it'll yeah. make you cry. And uh, yeah. because that is a fucking tragic book, and you shouldn't give yeah. it to children because it breaks so, your heart. So basically, this is like this is be like advertising. Yeah. I don't know if they still teach this in schools, but this would be like advertising a separate piece mm. as like a fun frolic through the trees. And you're like, <laughs> no, <laughs> people are going to be mad. Yeah, they they advertise the Bridge to Terabithia like some kind of one funder. Fund- Funderful. Funderful is fine. I was going to say fun and wonderful. Instead, I said one and funderful. Yeah. And yeah, they, uh, when they go there, it's like that's their fantasy world. And, and in the movie, they, add, they added like and... like in their imagination, yeah. you know, monsters and things. And yeah. that's the only part they focused yeah. on in the, the advertising. Yeah. And it turns out uh, that is not the tone at mm. all of what you're going to get. And you're going to be pissed. Mm. People were pissed. I remember. Very yeah. Oh, there's giants in this thing. No. No. Most anyway, of uh, giant, giant. Giant depression. Uh, con- <laughs> continuing with uh, Starship's letter, uh, since I didn't see that many 2020 releases, I can't really drop a top 10 this year. Okay. However, I did see a ton of older movies last year, so I thought I would share my top 10 discoveries of last Yay, year. Yay, that's yeah, awesome. These, these We'd love to hear really those. Fun. Uh, number 10, Onibaba. I love the way this film looks. Every frame is beautiful. I love Onibaba. I, so, I, I, I'm not sure if I've seen that one. I haven't. It might be confusing with something else. Uh, 1966, I think it came yeah. out. It's by Kaneto Shindo, who also did Kuroneko and a few other uh, really Yeah, I've notable... seen Kaneto Shindo's films. I yeah. think I'm just confusing it with like another... So what's the other one that we did? We did a podcast on a supernatural mm. samurai film. Oh, well, we, we, did, we did Ugetsu. Ugetsu, that's which is Which is a Mizuguchi film. That, I was thinking uh, of Ugetsu, you're right. Okay. I haven't seen Onibaba. Yeah, Onibaba is, okay. uh, takes place uh, in a, a field of grass, and it's constantly waving and making noise. It's just above your head. And uh, rogue samurai, after a failed war, are wandering through this field where the main characters, uh, mother and her daughter, lay in wait in a little hut. They lure samurai into a pit where they fall to their deaths. They climb down there, strip the corpses, and sell the armor, and that's how they make their money. Right. And uh, then, uh, and they're they're just horrible people. They're just murderers. Yeah. And then. Uh, Two things happen. A young man comes through and the young woman says, wait a minute, let's, hmm, this guy's actually kind of like, let's got pay attention to this guy. Let's not kill sexy. this guy. Kind of sexy. Let's have some yeah. sexy times. And the mom's getting really jealous of their relationship. Yeah. And then another samurai comes through and he's wearing an Oni mask, like a uh, Japanese demon mask. We can't see his face. Mm. He says, well, I wear this mask because I'm too beautiful. And so they lure that, try to lure that guy in. There's something weird yeah. happens with the I, mask. I, I imagine there are twists mm. and turns. There's twists and turns. I don't want to yeah. give it away. But okay. yeah, see Oni Baba. It's okay. really, really terrifying. Awesome. Well, I guess I'm um, sure I do. Number nine, A Night to Remember. I, pull, <sighs> I put off this film for a long time because I didn't think a, a film made in the 1950s could put off showing the sinking of the Titanic. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm also a big uh, fan of, because uh, there were two Titanic movies come out around the same time, A Night to Remember, which is excellent. Yeah. And also Titanic. They just had another one called Titanic. Mm-hmm. And there is one bit of melodrama in the, in the one called Titanic from the mm-hmm. 1950s. That is so much more effective than any of the melodrama in James Cameron's one. <laughs> that it's one of the reasons why it took me a while to like get on board with James Cameron's because I'm like, where's the bit with the dad and the son? Oh, like, it's so goddamn sad. Yeah, I actually haven't seen that Titanic, I've, and it's yeah. been a long time since I've seen A Night to Remember. I remember they used the F word in it though. What? 
Really? Yeah, in, in a night to remember. I don't it. remember so, that at like, all. Talk about somebody being fucking rich. I think. I don't and, remember yeah. that at all. Okay, I'll have, to, I'll have to rewatch it. Oh, yeah, maybe it's been a long time. Yeah. Okay, crazy. Um, number eight, when Marnie was there. Yay! A, a Studio Ghibli film that made me cry my eyes out. The way the movie deals with grief and dealings with abandonment hit my hit me right where I live. Um, um, I feel I love that movie. There's such an underappreciated Studio Ghibli film that mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of wrote that one off. That movie is absolutely stunning, and it's. I love that it's about an. It's about introversion, hmm. which very few movies really tackle, especially not like fantasy hmm. films for kids. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, number seven, Airport seventy seven. This was just fun. That's <laughs> I've actually I never seen any of the airport movies. Oh yeah, there's a people. They're they're they're, they're terrible. Uh, <laughs> they're, well, the first one got like nominated for a bunch of Oscars, didn't it? I mean, they're a blast to watch, but yeah. they're just these big dumb clunky Hollywood entertainment. For, for people who don't know what we're talking about, in the 1970s, a lot of people know that in the 1970s, uh, the big at least until Star Wars came around, like the big blockbuster trend was disaster movies like the Poseidon Adventure, the Towering Inferno, and one of the first films in that wave uh, was a film called Airport, which is about the disaster at an airport. What, what? I think it was 76. Five airport. Let me look up the date. I think it was a little earlier than airport. that. I feel like the first one was like airport 71. 77 was the sequel. One because of the sequels. Like four of those things. And that's the thing. It's, it's been like this big franchise uh, that didn't end until I think airport, the Concord, which was like, really? I think 81 or something like we're at 79, like right around there. Um, the first one airport. Yeah. Uh, came out. Uh, the, there was a novel in 1968. Yeah. And it was, and the, and the person who wrote it was the person who also wrote, uh, the movie that, um, uh, wrote Zero Hour, which is the movie that Airplane is spoof. Yeah, is a spoof of. Uh, Arthur Haley is. So he's like responsible author. for like all of the airport disasters. Yeah, the first fiction. airport was 1970. Yeah, right. right Air, at the Air, end of there. Airport 1975, Airport 77, the Concord, Ellipsis, Airport 79. Okay, and that's where it ended. It's just so the there four. were four big giant movies, and the Concord was a massive was a massive failure. But mm-hmm. like there were, there was this big franchise, and. I love when people talk about like all their franchise movies as just like, ah, the Fast and the Furious, these movies will be popular forever. And I'm like, give it a couple generations. (laughs) Everything dies. Like there's a handful that haven't yet, but there will be a time, I'm sure, when James Bond dies. Or becomes <laughs> part of the past. They're just not right. interesting anymore. And just and becomes like something like, you know, Dracula, which is part of the firmament, but isn't like its own thing anymore. Like yeah. it's, it's everyone can do it. Like um I'm willing to bet franchises die, is my point. They disappear. Yeah, I'm willing to bet I'll put money on it that James Bond will vanish from the popular consciousness. I mean, not if, right if they, away, but not no, that like, long like it's gonna, it's. I feel like it's already like kind of dwindling a little. There, like people are looking forward to the next one. Sure, but and again, there's all the speculation: who's gonna play Bond next? Mm, someone, I don't know, someone British probably. Daniel Day Kim, get him. He'd okay. be good. Well, okay, uh, <laughs> be cool. Yeah. Um, uh, but but regardless, you're right, and I think that, and I think one thing I've noticed that's kind of interesting is I've seen a lot of like. And we'll get back to the letter, obviously, mm. in a second. But, like, uh, a lot of, like, younger people, like, millennials, who, like, suddenly, like... I saw this article, like, when they released, like, all the Bond films on Netflix for the first time in the UK. Mm. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of young people who were kind of experiencing Bond for the... Maybe they'd seen the recent ones, but they'd never seen the history of it. And a lot of people looking at him like, he's a monster. Yep. He's a tool for the really conservative government, does a lot of really terrible things. He's an unapologetic murderer. Uh, commits sexual assault on more than one occasion in these things and is never uh, taken to task for that. Huh? Um, ma- do we need this? And the, que- <laughs> the answer to that question is maybe not. <laughs> At least not unless he evolves dramatically. So, yeah, that's it's a, it could go the way of the dodo, the, and maybe he should. The last James Bond film should have been Goldeneye. 
You think that the very last the last one. one because yeah. James Bond is a Cold War figure. He's no, a Cold War it. character and Goldeneye was the first one made after the Cold War. Yeah. And in it they just said, well, you know what, James Bond still needs to clean up a little bit after mm-hmm. the Cold War cuz that is about sort of things last that were held over from the Cold War about right. all this like old Soviet stuff that we still needed to deal with. But yeah, it kind of just sort of put James Bond in a light saying, we don't need you anymore. You're a dinosaur. Here's your one last hurrah where you get to sort of clean up after the Cold War and then we're done. We don't need this MI6 crap. Again, if we were if we were focused on Bond as a narrative instead of like an ongoing franchise, that makes perfect sense. Well, just as a reflect a a reflection of the political time. What I would like to see happen with the James Bond franchise that they absolutely must continue it in some way. We're done with theaters. Hmm. We are going to do James Bond as a period piece. Oh, there you go. Set in the 50s, 40s, whatever, whatever the book is, following closely the original novels. Mm. And we'll do it like they did the Sherlock series, which is like we'll do like three two-hour episodes a year. Okay. And we'll do like, we'll do Doctor No, and then we'll go right to whatever, the from much with love, whatever the next one was. Mm. Um, and I think keep Bond in that era okay. where he makes sense. And then, yeah, please add additional commentary. We're wiser now as a people. We should. We don't need to just linger on everything. Anyway, we got way off the beaten track. Let's keep okay. going. Uh, the, number the six, one yeah. cut of the dead. Uh, another part. Another one I put off. I am so sick of zombie movies that I avoided this one. However, it turned out to be one of the most feel-good movies I've ever seen. Damn. Still not not in my experience. I haven't seen that one either. I really got it. Uh, number five, the straight story. I love David Lynch for all his weirdness, but it was nice to see him make such a lovely movie that felt distinctively him yeah uh, it's very it's a it does it's not david lynch and yet it's totally david lynch in every yeah, single way. Yeah. it's one of the most interesting films he ever made uh number four orpheus the cocteau one yeah i was actually unfamiliar with the myth until i saw this movie gorgeous oh yeah there, there's yeah. there's a lot of orpheus movies that are just influenced by that story by the myth so whether or not you've like studied up on the myth you know it just through popular entertainment yeah uh number three same time next year the movie that made me cheer for the two adulterers uh, number two, Freebie and the Bean. <laughs> oh, I've actually never seen Freebie and the Bean. I hate myself for enjoying this as much as I did because it, it's full of bigotry. But I'm a sucker for a buddy cop movie, and James Caan and Alan Arkin had a surprisingly great chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's been argued that that's the first proper buddy cop film. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I can't really dispute. I mean, buddy cop, I guess, sitcoms like Car 54, Where Are You? But um, as a buddy cop film, yeah, well, Freebie and the Bean is considered typically like the one that codified the genre. Well, as... Um, the two cops having very different personalities. Mm. Car 54, where are you? Was just two wacky two, cops. Two wacky cops. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't. It's like clones of the same character. Well, I, I, uh, uh, well if you want to go that and want to take it more seriously in the heat of the night. Okay, in the heat of the night. Yeah, yeah. so like it, it had been done, but like. That's in, not a buddy cop comedy. But no, yeah, no, about, not as a comedy, but in terms of like mismatched cop hmm, thing, like there pairs, was there yeah. was groundwork that had been done before. Yeah, the modern era was definitely 48 hours, but yeah. I think 48 hours wouldn't exist without Freebie and the Bean. Oh, for sure, for sure. So there you go. And uh, number one is The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yeah. Uh, what can I say about this? It was a blast from start to finish. I fell in love with the three main characters and their journey. Thanks for another year of great shows from you two guys. Uh, it helped me through the dumpster fire that was 2020. Sincerely, Starship. Yeah, I, I grew up loving Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I think it was the first unabashedly queer film mm. uh, I had ever seen, and I thought it was really, really great. Uh, recently, as I rewatched watched it and heard some other people talk about it i've come to realize that there's at least one scene in that movie that is frustratingly has racism in it and um i don't think it ruins the entire movie but that one bit is just sort of like oh yeah Mm. well damn it but can we go back to Mm. the uh dress made entirely out of sandals (laughs) that was cool 
Yeah. Well, it, it you know deals with contemporary issues and came out at a certain time. Oh, so, it's, yeah. oh it's still it's still mostly wonderful. There's a thing that uh, uh, Michelle and I believe like we don't really believe in like guilty pleasure movies, but there is such a thing as a shame watch. <laughs> which, uh, there's a movie that we like a lot of this movie, but it came out from a different time, and there are elements of it that are not good. That are in no way progressive, in many cases regressive, or there's one bit or character who's racist. And in that one bit, you can't ignore that bit. Mm. You just kind of sit in it and go, well, yeah, okay, that's in there too. And if you want to enjoy the rest of it, you have to acknowledge and work through the fact that one part of it is shitty. Uh, case in point, I know a lot of people who love the Silence of the Lambs, but also have to acknowledge that it was really shitty for the trans community. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. There's a lot of great filmmaking in there, and if you still like it, okay, mm. but I think you can't do that and ignore how shitty it was to the trans community. So for me, that's become a shame watch. Yeah. You know? Anyway, uh, let's move on. Okay. Uh, here is a letter from... Oh, I just had it. Here's a letter from Brett. Hello, Brett. Hi, Brett. Uh, good day, fellas. Over the weekend, I did a double feature of Iraq war movies set stateside, In the Valley of Elah and The Messenger. Oh, the Messenger okay. is a much better film. But I also enjoyed Elah to watch Tommy Lee Jones chew the scenery. Uh, anyway, I was curious what your overall thoughts were on how the Iraq-Afghanistan wars were portrayed in film thus far, especially how something like 9-11 had been portrayed. Uh, similar to how no one wants to watch a COVID movie yet, with the popular exception of uh, possible exception of Host, I think the war was a uh, sore subject matter up until we really had some distance from the matter. Since so it has been many years since America has participated in the war on terror, uh, which films really stand out as to how they portrayed the disgruntled attitude of the time and which ones ring false? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Brett. Um, um, that's there, a good point. Yeah, yeah there was uh, an, an attempt right away to reconcile 9-11 in film. Um, uh, yeah, I think there was an initial, like, we were pulling back on anything that evokes 9-11 yeah. without being 9-11. Like, there were a lot of action movies, uh, or just movies that were delayed or recut, mm. or probably just failed because they because of timing. Yeah, like, um, uh, Some of All Fears featured fears, a terrorist yeah. attack on American soil. That's yeah. a really good movie, by the, the way, but it, bad yeah, timing. There was uh, the movie Collateral Damage, was, was the, uh, an, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that didn't isn't really well regarded because it deals with terrorism. It's, it's hardly his worst movie. It's actually not that bad, but just the timing was shit. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then there was uh, a movie I'm very fond of actually called big trouble. It was a Barry Sonnenfeld oh, yeah. comedy film with this wonderful cast. You know, it's got uh, Zoe Deschanel and Ben Foster and Tim Allen and Renee Russo and Stanley Tucci and Patrick Warburton and Dennis Farina and yeah. a, a slew of really great actors. Uh, and, uh, it's uh, one of the plot points was Tom Sizemore and Johnny Knoxville have stolen a suitcase sized nuclear bomb and uh, they don't really know what it is, but they know it's worth a lot of money. So they take it and they say, OK, we're going to hold you guys hostage and we're going to take you on a plane. And one of the jokes in the movie is, oh, haha, isn't it so funny? They can just carry that thing onto a plane and the airport airport security sucks. And, you know. Yeah, the, that's it was not funny right now. It was going to be yeah. released right after somebody hijacked a plane and flew it into a building. So, um, yeah, yeah this is, no, we this should, is that's, not... That's, uh, that's bad timing. We're not going to do that shit. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but then there were, there were a lot of filmmakers, like Paul Greengrass mm -hmm. made um, uh, United 93 mm -hmm. shortly after 9-11. Which, which is and, very uh, specifically about just the events of the plane that actually... Uh, where the passengers actually took over the plane and yeah. they crashed it, probably saving a lot of lives, but also sacrificing themselves in the process. That is one of the movies that is so unbelievably harrowing, mm. absolutely impeccably directed. You are there terrifying. The last shot still haunts me to this day. Uh -huh. I never want to see it again. 
<laughs> I don't need to see it again. It was so intense. I respect it. I admire it. I would tell anybody that it's brilliant, and I don't need to see it again. Yeah. <laughs> Point made. Um, Thank you. I don't know if I could live through it like that. Yeah. Uh, United 93 came out in 2006, the same year as uh, Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, which I didn't see. Yeah. Uh, which is about uh, the, the was first responders. Was resoundingly rejected. Yeah, a lot yeah. Of, not a lot of people like that one just because they're trying to make cheap melodrama. Yeah. Uh, if if you'll notice, after 9-11, a lot of action movies got really gritty all of a sudden. Everything yeah. was really kind of... Uh, Everything scaled back. Dark, dark and down to earth. Well, we didn't the, have, the, like, the we, the fun big scale. Oh, look, isn't it fun that a spaceship is blowing up the White House? Yeah, that that got pulled uh, way the hell yeah. back a little bit. We started getting more born identities. Yeah. Because uh, I think... Greens, I think a, lot, the, a lot more Paul Greengrass, actually. That's true, actually. And uh, I think a, a lot of it was uh, people were... Uh, they, when they saw violence on TV... In whether it be a movie or, or a TV show or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it, there wasn't as much distance from it because so many people were in New York, new people saw the horrors on television that all of a sudden we're, this isn't like, oh, what a fun suspension of disbelief, all these explosions. Like, no, it's not fun right now and it won't be for a while. Um, everything got a little too real and a lot of people were genuinely traumatized. Mm. Uh, whether they were literally in New York or not That's a traumatic event That an entire generation mm. of people lived through And responding to that by thinking Maybe extreme violence Or maybe, or even just like Making enormous scale violence Seem fun mm. Is in poor taste And there's an argument to be made for that And mm. boom uh, I, I feel like we were so eager to uh, Reckon with this dramatic event In popular cinema that mm a lot of filmmakers really didn't know how to handle it yet. Yeah. And even like years later, um, was it 2010 or 2011 when that film extremely loud and incredibly close came out? I was a little after um, that, but yeah, yeah. yeah. It, Boy, is that movie ham fisted. Exactly. We, yeah. we turned this big tragic event and when they tried to turn it into the old type of Hollywood mel- melodrama that we were used to, uh-huh. it was incredibly tasteless. Yeah. Uh, there were, there were two films about, Actually, this one's about the first Iraq War, but Jarhead, Jarhead, was, which came uh, out, at, which came out around the time of like the second Iraq War, but it was about the first, so it kind of it was kind of like that. Kind of, yeah. It's about the Korean War, but it's also really, about, it's about Vietnam, Vietnam yeah. You know? yeah, like that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, and that's about just sort of how boring the soldiers' experience is to the point where you don't even necessarily need to witness combat to have your mind just sort of erased by this military mindset. It's like, yeah. we're, we're going to get you prepared for combat. We're going to ship you to exotic locations. You're going to be a man of action. No, you're not sit there and, yeah. and breathe in poison and yeah. do and nothing. Let, and, and let the people in the sky do all the work. Mm-hmm. And so we prepared everybody to be mindless killers and we didn't even let them kill. And that's a weird scene. Yeah. And it's interesting actually, because when they first mentioned, and this is, this is just how old I am, um, when they first mentioned the Iraq War, my first thought was the first Iraq War, Operation Desert Storm, hmm. where I feel like the movies we got out of that were all over the place because hmm. like half of them were stuff like Hot Shots, where it was just like Saddam <laughs> Hussein. We have, Sodom, we, have yeah. like, we have like we have like a we have like an over the top fascist dictator that we can make fun of the way we, like we used to make fun of like Hitler and Three Stooges cartoons, right? Cartoons, uh, shorts. Um, and uh, then there was stuff that was actually like really serious and harrowing like courage under fire is a very good Iraq war yeah. movie. Um, I highly recommend it. Great cast. Lou Diamond Phillips, never better. I, I always thought he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that movie. And, but then we also started getting, as we had a little distance from it, we started realizing the sort of millennial approach to mm. war and how we're not just going to look at war as it's all bad or it's all good. We're going to start looking at war as a tool of 
the machine. Yeah. And how it affects people and how uh, Americans aren't always the good guys and how corporations are involved in this and how the United States government doesn't always have the best interests of everybody at heart. And then we started getting films like Three Kings, uh, which really blew a lot of people away at the time. uh, And it's still quite good. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, after 9-11, that was such a traumatic event. There was no distance from war whatsoever that we just started getting these really uh, intense films. And then we started getting... Around the around like the two thousand tens ish, we started getting enough distance from nine eleven that it mm. stopped being quite uh, so just all harrowing, and we started getting more films about how we've been in we've been embroiled in the same conflict or conflict in the exact same region mm. for so long that a whole lot of people had either, were either veterans mm. or new veterans, and they kind of wanted to see. Uh, uh, Marines, soldiers, people in the military Portrayed mm-hmm. in a positive light Because there was so much negativity around it And the negativity around it Because those wars were shit As indeed almost all wars always have been um, But, you know, we support the troops Of course we do mm-hmm. So we started getting films like Lone Survivor yeah. Or Act of Valor Or American Sniper Movies Easy. which were, you know Maybe they had some critique about elements of the war How they war were, is held But the soldiers were very, themselves Very pro-military Yeah, know? they were ultimately very pro-military And it was an interesting Because initially there was this real desire To either uh, uh, not give in to propaganda hmm. uh, We haven't had like a major full sweep Of like propaganda like unabashed propaganda for a while now, like well, be, it, beyond these military, beyond, films, but, yeah. but there hadn't been for a while. Like, right. I feel like uh, we had the Green Beret around the time at the start of the Vietnam War, and that was supposed to be yeah, like the, the pro military, pro Vietnam War movie, and people rejected it outright. And then mm-hmm. the overall effect of Vietnam War movies was this war sucks and it was a bad idea and it was bad all around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that tone affected all the other military conflicts. Since mm-hmm. that we made movies about And then these other ones went on so long That eventually people cracked it And found a way to do the propaganda Without making the war seem itself cool Yeah And so we got a lot of What was that one that Chris Hemsworth was in with the horses It's like 12 Strong oh, or something Oh golly yeah That sounds about right 12 Strong 12, 12 yeah. Strong Yeah boy is that one <laughs> Chris unabashedly the corny They should just call it Chris Hemsworth and the horses Yeah that's unabashedly corny mm-hmm. It's not badly made. It's just corny. I mean, you can't really accept it as anything resembling reality because there's a scene where like Chris Hemsworth comes back to life and like raises his horse from the dead so that he can, I mean, of course was dead. And then he just, he just, Chris Hemsworth just gets up and they have that Saving Private Ryan thing where all the sound mm. falls out. And the Chris horse, Hemsworth just like gives that whistle. I can't do it. Like, and then uh, the horse just goes <laughs> back into battle, baby. <laughs> it's like fucking He-Man's cat. Like it's just so. It, it's propaganda. It's unabashed propaganda. But they found a way to make it seem less like it. Because there's always this desire to sell people stuff. Well, those to sell kinds, people the ideas, to yeah. sell people the idea that this is yeah. positive. Th- yeah. Those kinds of movies actually do shed a light on how we film uh, action in yeah. in cinema. How how action uh, films are. Just combat. It's just war. Yeah. All action sequences. You know, it, it to could some just, extent, but yeah. To some extent, but you know, yeah. we're 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 getting a thrill off of violence. Yeah. Uh, that is, and it's usually in the context of a good guy is going to do violence to a bad guy, and we can get a thrill on that. We can get the sort of moral charge, and all of that is sort of an echo of what combat is supposed to represent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're you're saying they're trying to like. 
make combat look like action movies, but action movies are always already kind of influenced by combat. Yeah. Uh, before mm. I move on real fast, is there, are there any particular mm. films from about the recent, mm. uh, uh, the recent wars that we've been embroiled in for so long that we um, haven't mentioned that you want, do think are actually well, worth I, seeking out? I've noticed that there are a lot uh, recently about like, it's going back to the top. Uh, Oliver Stone made W. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam McKay made Vice about Bush and Cheney, respectively. Yeah, so about, that's about it politically. Yeah, yeah and um, and uh, not the program that was the uh, Lance Armstrong, the the one about the torture memos. Oh, the um, it had a really bland name. The the, the, the Adam ca- Driver movie. The ca- started with a C, didn't it? The cabinet, the, the, the court. The, the portfolio, the portfolio, the, yeah, it had, the campaign. The I can't even remember the oh, title. It was a good Adam, movie too. Um, Ad, hold on, Adam Driver. <laughs> like Adam Driver movie. War movie. No, it's the about. It's about the torture memo. I think it was just called like the memo or some yeah, such thing. The, uh, but the yeah, thingy doodle. Uh, hold on, I'll find. Yeah, that, I'll that, find it. But that was a film about from uh, just a couple of years ago that was about under uncovering these torture memos. Um, we had. Yeah. Uh, Errol Morris making a film called Standard Operating Procedure, which was about the tortures that were going on. on the Report. The Report. Why couldn't I remember that? Uh, <laughs> That's again much more generic yeah, than that. The title. Report. It was yeah. about the Torture Report. Um, yeah. They should call it The Torture Report. Then at least it sticks in your craw, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, so, in in recent memory, there have been a lot of good films that have been uh, really kind of delving delving into this reckoning we've been having with uh, sort of the the messages that were sold us, and we're finally able to separate it and place blame places. But uh, unfortunately, it's not leading to this great wave of uh, justice. We're just yeah. sort of saying everything about that war was lies and unjust. Uh, oh, and there was also the Valerie Plame movie. Um, oh, which one? There were a couple. Uh, the the one with Naomi Watts and, oh, and Sean um, Penn. Uh, Fair Game. Fair Game. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. I like mm. the one a lot. That that's one was a, a good re- one, too. Yeah. That one's really smart because it's about... Um, and that was a Doug Liman movie, actually, mm. um, who did The Born Identity. Um, it's about the lead-up to uh, the the second war in Iraq when there was all like, oh, they have all these weapons of mass destruction, and Valerie Plame and all these other people at CIA are like, no, they don't. <laughs> and they're like, well, we think they do. And I'm like, well, we had all these people and all these boots on the ground and we did all this research and no, no, they literally don't. And uh, what happened is they released like Valerie Plains, mm. like they basically doxed her and revealed yeah. that she was a member of the CIA and everything. And they basically tried to discredit her while also completely drawing attention away from the actual issue, which is that we're going to war for bullshit reasons. And that movie's really, really clever because at about the time you realize, wait a minute, wasn't this about a war and the movie's gotten really distracted by all this shit about Valerie playing with the media? And you go like, oh shit, that's exact. That's really smart filmmaking, actually. Mm. <laughs> they just fucking did it. That's, <laughs> that's a good one. I actually hadn't thought yeah. about that one. Um, the one I recommend, and it's actually, I think, I think it might be about the original Iraq war, mm. um, is a really great HBO miniseries called Generation Kill, mm. uh, which uh, was from the makers of The Wire. Mm. Um and um, it's really great. It's an incredible cast. Um, and it really does portray the actual war, boots on the ground war, as the clusterfuck yeah. that it was. And how completely unprepared and how bureaucracy was getting in the way of doing anything even remotely mm. resembling the right thing. And how some people just literally shouldn't have been there. Uh-huh. Like they, they were not qualified <laughs> <laughs> to be there and they're ruining everything for everybody and and it really does feel like a combination of like in the Iraq war of like catch 22 mm. and mash 
and like with like just a little platoon. Like it's a really, really great, thoughtful, re- well-researched, funny, surprisingly, mm. uh, but very serious uh, miniseries. It's on HBO Max. It got completely overshadowed, I think, when it came out by like other bigger miniseries, but mm. I highly recommend it. Uh, Generation Kill, I'd seen it first. It's one of the reasons why I didn't love The Hurt Locker so much. Okay. Like I admire it; it's a good movie. Mm. But like, I Generation Kill was so much more to me mm. what I felt like we needed to be seeing and talking about, and the fact that it was like six hours long obviously helped. But yeah, we had more real estate. Oh, do we have time for one more? Sure, we'll All do, right. we'll do, do one, one more. One more letter. Yeah, I, I love the Hurt Locker. By the way, I think that's a yeah. terrific movie. Yeah. Um, here's a letter from the Irreverent Reverend. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> His name is Zach. The Irreverent Reverend Zach. Hi, Zach. Uh, greeting Bibbs and Whitney. Sorry, I have no cool spelling for Rockmeister McCool. Ah, that's fine. Yeah. That's my letter's name. Uh, I am 30 now. Muzzle tough. And shockingly didn't have a massive crisis about it as I expected to. Hmm. But I have noticed one thing. I find myself growing ever so tired and evilly annoyed by subcultures that I used to be a part of. <laughs> Welcome to your 30s. Yes. Um, Hits you like a ton of bricks. Oh, like yeah, it really does. birthday. Just boom. Done. Uh, I grew up a wrestling fan and now I can't stand the majority of wrestling fans. I became a YouTube guy in college, but I find myself either bored or annoyed with the content that the pers- or personalities of the people I used to enjoy. I think I'm just burst- burnt out on, quote, personality-driven content over content that focuses on substance or expertise. My taste in movies has changed, too. I saw Iron Man in theaters and was hooked on Marvel until about Civil War. And now I'm just more annoyed with the barrage of news and posts I see about them. They're hmm. fine blockbusters, but I don't necessarily think they're anything special. Right. I've always had a reputation for being pretentious. Oh. Uh. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> When the pandemic's uh, over, Winnie will give you a hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was first called pretentious when I was like 13. It's right. just, yeah, golly. In high school, I would go to closing video stores and buy every indie presenting DVD and then watch them. I found some gems like Win Win and Elephant and Jerry. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jerry's a Jerry's a hoot. Um, I like Win Win a lot. That's an underappreciated moment. I never saw Win Win, but I've yeah. seen Elephant and I've seen Jerry. Yeah. Um, uh, I like relatively obscure bands and read relatively obscure books. So I guess my question is, is this just part of everyone growing into their 30s to just outgrow the media they used to enjoy? Or is this more of a byproduct of the aforementioned pretentiousness? Did either you, either of you experience growing out of a subculture or quite possibly multiple shifts like this in your own lives? I still enjoy science fiction. The Expanse is excellent and fantasy, but what I consider a wide range of films, I'm having trouble filling my entertainment time as my tastes shift. I found you both through the Schmodown, another casualty of something I really enjoyed, but have become lethargic towards in the last couple of years. Fair enough. Uh, and now listen to basically everything you put out. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, keep it up. Know there is a desire for a critical eye in an age where it seems having a nuanced opinion on media is a lost art. You know, I, I there's a lot in, in what you just said. I don't mm. want to talk about it because there's a lot of nuance involved. But um, I myself am very heartened. That, you know, Wendy and I, we, we talk about, you know, we, have, we have podcasts about Star Trek and Batman, like mm. on our Patreon. We're not out, completely outside of nerd culture. Um, but it really, really warms my heart to find out how many people who are like writing in are watching stuff like Onibaba. Yeah. And like, because it reminds you that people are still watching this stuff just because it sucks out all the oxygen. Mm. All these franchises suck out all the oxygen in so many online spaces, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or whatever movie review site you follow. Mm. You know, so much of it is about the same stuff. Yeah. I like a lot of that stuff, but there's, it's only actually like a small part of what's out there Mm. and it takes up all the energy. It takes up all the air. Uh, Realizing that there's so much more out there 
is I, I hope a, a somewhat inevitable part of growing up and that you just realize mm. you gain more experience, you gain more wisdom. And then whether you find the same stuff or go off in a completely different direction, than other people, you know, hopefully you realize that mm. there's just even more because there is, you can keep mm. liking the old stuff. There's that old expression. Like when I was a child, I thought as a child, I did stuff as a child. Mm. And then as an adult, I did adult stuff and did, other stuff mm. that I didn't do as a child. And That's a, a, a weird quote of the Bible, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But the idea is that you, when you're an adult, you're supposed to put away I'm, childish things. That's I'm, actually bullshit. Well, you can the, totally I, keep reading comics. You can totally like go, keep... go back to the passage. It actually says, I, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. And when I became an adult, I put away childish things. It's not about stop stopping playing with your toys. Yeah. Well, That's a lot not, of people interpret it that way. Yeah. I just want to, I just want to say mm. that like, thank you for knowing the great, the actual mm. quote. Mm. But my point is this. You don't have to, like, disregard stuff from when you were younger. Uh-huh. But it's also okay if you do. It's completely okay to grow out of something or even just grow out of parts of it. Again, you, you mentioned in your email. You still like a lot of the Marvel movies. Mm. A lot of them are good. I understand growing out of the hype because it takes a lot of time and energy. And mm-hmm. there's this weird fanaticism involved in some of it well, from a lot of people, I've whether or not that's uh, you. And it just gets exhausting. I've, I've noticed a lot of that hype machine and a lot of the advertising world in general is geared toward young single people. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'll notice the advertising around, uh, you know, if, if there's a married couple depicted in a TV commercial, they're doing domestic stuff. Yeah. They're, it's about cleaning your kitchen or preparing your breakfast. Whereas uh, most other ads are, wear this and you'll get to fuck. Yeah, or you'll be like jumping out of a a plane. Or you're doing all these cool like mountain climbings. (laughs) The taste of these chips is extreme. It's it's corn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's extreme corn with powder on it. Oh, it's corn cheese powder. Uh That's not extreme, guys. It's not. Uh, but that's that's sort of the language they're using. Um, and I think because of that, and because there's so much just loose income and advertising dollars that can fund this machine, yeah. that's where uh, the loudest noise is coming from. Yeah. So you t- start to, when you're growing out of it, you start to get this uh, pushback. It's like, okay, I'm not going to do that. What are you, what are you why are you putting it down? There's no reason to put it down. Keep on doing it. And, that, and, and I remembered... We're, uh, we're looking at this specifically in terms of like pop culture. Yeah. But this goes beyond that. This goes everything from like, hey, we're going out drinking tonight. I'm like, no, I'm 30. I want to stay in and read a book. Yeah. Like that's that, part that, of that That too. will bring me pleasure now. Yeah. yeah like I don't need this constant... I don't need to constantly feel like I'm doing things. Yeah. I can do other things and I'm fine with it. And the peer pressure is just getting annoying now. Yeah. What, what happens when adults try to recapture that magic? See any movie about bros. Yeah. Uh, it's, watch it's, The Hangover. That's yeah. what that movie is it's, about. It's fun for a night and then you get bored with it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I remember I was on... A, Back uh, when I was still doing Geekscape stuff, yeah. I was on a podcast. I was on with uh, Jonathan London, who mm-hmm. uh, was running Geekscape, and he still does his own thing. Look up Jonathan London. He's got his own stuff, um, just to give him a little bit of plug. Um, and I was t- having a conversation with somebody who was in your situation, uh, listener, about how they had, like, I think they had just turned 31, and they just said, I... They're announcing all these brand new TV shows, and it's like these big, long, complicated mythologies, and I just don't really have the energy for that level of fandom anymore. And I just said, welcome to your thirties. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot to people who just reach a certain age. Now, some people can continue that. 
They can go into yeah. their fifties and sixties and still be fanatical. Forrest J. Ackerman is the godhead of that kind of movement. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was, he never stopped being a monster movie fan. And there are some people who are my eight. I'm, I'm in my mid sixties and, uh, <laughs> Some people who are He's in his around, early forties. I'm in my early forties, and there are some people who are around my age who are still doing that. It's like I still, I you know, I, I watch Captain America: Civil War like once a week. I still love it. It's like okay, cool, that's, that's fine, do yeah. it. Um, but you know, there are a lot of people who, by necessity, because they just sort of grow up and lose interest in stuff, move on to other things, and because yeah. of this advertising machine, there's this message in our heads that growing up and moving on isn't okay yeah it's not cool there's no, no place for you and this is something that's actually really important to me when we were talking about like who are we we, we, we try not to get too caught up on this mm. but there was some conversation that we've had before about like who are we making podcasts for mm. and i you know i've worked as like an editor for like websites and things before and i've worked writing for various geeky websites mm. and what I realized eventually was that every single one of these websites, if you're, if you're there for a couple of years, you might not notice. But if you're there for 10, you realize that you are growing up, but uh, the target demo is staying the same age. Yeah. You're yeah. constantly writing several people in like their 20s or even their teens. And you need to kind of write towards their interests. But I myself am growing up. And I realized there's no entertainment media that has a prominent presence that is not catering to people in their early 20s. Yeah. I mean, there's overlap, sure. I, I like superhero movies as much as anybody. I do. But mm. there's all of these people who are mm. who grew up with all this geeky stuff and still like it. Mm. And still like movies and TV and music and all this other media. But they're growing up now. Yeah. And they're they're in their 30s, their 40s, 50s, maybe older. Um, they've got kids, sometimes they've got grandkids, and their perspectives are different. And the stories that are hitting them or that interest them or excite them aren't necessarily the exact same stories that are exciting to people who are 20. And yet, we're not making space for them. Mm. We're not making, you know, media for them. We're not making websites for that crowd even though that's the exact same crowd we were recording 10, 15 years ago. Mm. They have the exact same number of people. We're just expecting them to absorb the exact same stuff, the exact same relatively immature way. Mm. And have the same take on it and the yeah. same attitudes about it. So and... like what we, I think, have been doing consciously or unconsciously is trying to make space for people who that, are when, getting, that is, you, that is you and I. You and I, we yeah. are. You know, you you're you're a Star Wars, a Star Trek geek. You're mm -hmm. a, you've you've read comic books before. You like a lot of this stuff, but we're at a point now where we don't feel like covering it the same old way. We like looking at it from the perspective of people who are older, have some yeah. perspective. Whether it's the right perspective, that's why we have many other shows out there for other people. But we want to look at it in a different way, and we want to make sure we make time. For other stuff, for older movies, for movies yeah. from other cultures, for for TV shows that nobody else gives a shit about. <laughs> we want to make sure that there's a place for that. And if that makes us kind of a niche audience, mm. okay, but and we've it, got and each other and there's not a lot of other places to go. It's, and it's, it is a pity, though, that that is niche and that the, is. the expected attitude toward pop media yeah. is the attitude of, of a, a younger person. Yeah. Now... That's exciting because there's a, a, a point in your life when you're going to be discovering stuff for the first time and sure. you're excited about stuff for the first time. It's wonderful. But a lot of that uh, self-perpetuating like uh, YouTube personality cycle that you were referring to 
uh, is designed not to push out and discover new things. Yeah, a lot of it's running after what we call search engine optimization, which yeah, is what right. are people already talking about? Well, we'll talk about that. And I always say to people, many of them who are more successful than I am, say, mm. listen, you have a platform, and it's such a big platform, and you're, you're talking about the same five movie franchises over and over again. Can you maybe take a little time to talk about something else and help use your platform to introduce people? And oftentimes they say they'd like to, but it just doesn't get traffic, so they can't afford to do it. I understand. They don't want to put the resources into what is considered a risk. I understand where Mm. that comes from, but I also, for me, I feel like the, the responsibility outweighs that. And so, yeah, this if this keeps us from becoming the biggest thing ever, fine. But what I hope is that we can maybe help normalize this idea that it is possible to like all different kinds of media mm-hmm. and to like all different kinds of movies and to like enjoy, you know, you can enjoy Batman and you can enjoy Knights and Rodanthe. Yeah. And you can enjoy mm-hmm. Airport 77 mm-hmm. and you can enjoy All Quiet on the Western Front mm-hmm. and you can enjoy Black Orpheus and all of these things that might not seem connected. They're connected because we contain multitudes. We're interested in all of it. And we think a lot of people are interested in things and they're sometimes not encouraged to. And we want to encourage them. So thank you for a really hmm. great email. Yeah. Thanks for writing that in. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's it, something that's relevant and that I've been yeah. pushing against ever since I turned 30. We're really passionate about it. Mm. And it's rare that we get a chance to talk about it so directly. So mm. thank you so much for uh, giving us that opportunity. Um, and thank you everybody who wrote into we've got mail. That is it for this week. Uh, once again, if you want to write into the show and ask us questions, recommendations, whatever you want to talk about, we're pretty open books. Um, you can email us. The email is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, mm-hmm. uh, where you can vote for future episodes of our shows. You also get a ton of exclusive content, including shows about Star Trek, Batman, uh, every single film ever nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, uh, movies that Disney is trying to sweep under the rug by not putting on Disney+, Plus, uh, commentary tracks. We just put out a poll right now for um, help us decide what uh, romantic movie mm-hmm. uh, we're going to do a commentary track for uh, in February. Uh, and uh, a ton of other stuff besides. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. A very special thank you to all of our patrons without whom we would not be here. We mm. could not afford to be here. We would, we, this whole network would not exist. So we're incredibly grateful to you for that. Um, and of course we're on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, again, if you're interested, uh, Michelle, as mentioned, uh, has a book, mm. uh, Hooker, which is a, uh, uh, feminist, pro-queer, pro-sex work, retro-wave, 1980s vigilante slasher uh, novel. Mm. Awesome. And also we have a, a new soap business over on Etsy called Salt Cat Soap, uh, where we have soaps that we make. <laughs> and uh, they're really, really quite nice. And uh, people are starting to get them and enjoy them. And that, makes, that, that really is cool. Um, so thank you, everybody. And once again, sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. <laughs>